Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. My name is Dennis, and this is my funky brain. There's a lot going on up here, but I'm feeling much better now. And I just want to take a second to talk about Life Mastery School right here. And that's a series of free videos that I do and different topics such as addiction recovery, um, marriage and relationships, mindfulness and meditation, health and wellness, free videos, 10 to 20 videos per topic. Just stop by the website, dennisberry.com and check it out. And maybe I'll see you soon over there. Our guest today, she's a very well-accomplished speaker, impact entrepreneur, and an advocate for suicide prevention, which we deal with sometimes around here. And after losing her brother, who was her best friend, to suicide in 2004, she's dedicated her life to suicide prevention. And she's a mental health advocate, which we love, a TEDx speaker, an award-winning researcher, and a clinical psychologist. And she works hard as an innovator of social change. And I'm happy to have her here today and bring some positive messages of strength and hope. Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, how are you doing today? Awesome. Dennis, thank you so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. So we met through the Mental Health News Radio Network, which is a beautiful collection of people with podcasts like ourselves who work in the mental health field. And the reason I brought Dr. Sally on is to talk about how serious this is, especially in these challenging times we're living in right now, where people are losing their jobs, their homes, their relationships, and they're struggling now more than ever. And we know, or at least you can correct me if I'm wrong, I did some research on this and about 45,000 Americans a year die by suicide. And that makes it the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Yeah. I mean, you can slice statistics any way you want to, but that is a, that's been a pretty stable number, somewhere between 45 and 50,000 people. Um, number 10 overall, but number two for our young people, number two for our kids, our teens, our young adults. So that's pretty alarming, you know, because young people should be living decades longer. You know, they're just at the beginning of their life and yet they're dying in this very tragic way. And to add to that, The number one cause of death for our young people is unintentional accidents, which includes things like overdoses and falls and car crashes, things that we consider to be a gray area around suicide. So um, it's very concerning. It's very serious. And I would say up until very recently, it was not very well attended to. Suicide is scary, understandably, but it's also, it's got this um, taboo quality to it. So nobody really wanted to talk about it or deal with it head on. And I think that was another thing the pandemic shifted for us. All of a sudden people wanted to put it front and center uh, because we were so afraid. Yeah. And one of the things we say is uh, in recovery land is uh, it's a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. We actually pushed back on that a little bit. Um because for some people, it is a chronic situation. And for some people, these are chronic problems. So, you know, so, like many of our short sayings that have a catch to it, sometimes they don't always completely ring true. Um, there are people that have, um, you know, chronic suicidal thoughts. They've had them since they were children. It's actually just part of their DNA. Uh, It's not something surging to a specific instance. It's just something that has always lingered around them. And then we also have people that, you know, are, have lived through and are living with the ramifications of some pretty significant and deep seated trauma. So it's not necessarily a temporary problem. It's something that they're coping with like their whole life. So 
yes, in, in some situations where the suicide reaction comes after a specific event, like a divorce or a financial bankruptcy, that, that, that saying can hold and help people see to the other side. But there's a lot of people for who that doesn't actually fit. And thanks for correcting me on that. I would say like the most important thing that we can talk about really is like one, you know, making yourself aware that there are solutions and then asking for help, right? Exactly. Um, the, the, the thing that really kind of crystallizes this for people and, and tends to move them from thought to action is the, well, obviously the overwhelming psychological pain that feels like flames at their back sometimes. So it moves from maybe a fleeting thought to like overwhelming pain. Um, that combined with the sense of being profoundly alone, profoundly alone. So reaching out for support um, in one of many different ways, mental health services is one of the ways, uh, but reaching out for support that really connects and resonates with you is the thing that can really help people feel connected and like they belong and also to start to develop some of those skills and solve the problems that are driving despair. Yeah, that's really great. You know, I took this quote from your website, which I really love. Be vocal, be visible, be visionary. There's no shame in stepping forward, but there is great risk in holding back and hoping for the best. Yeah, that's my call to action to all the leaders and influencers out there. Yeah, it's really easy to be all sexy and jazzed about things like profit making or whatever, success in life or whatever like that. I mean, that's easy, sexy stuff. It's a lot harder to talk about the things that you and I talk about, you know, addiction and suicide and depression and trauma. But really, there's ways to do that that are very engaging, very inspiring and honestly, life saving. And so I, the call to action to my leaders is, you know, come into the arena with the hard stuff, you know, be bold. You might not have all the answers. Uh, you might not even be sure of what to say, but, you know, we can help you. The, the point is you have to model it. And when you model it and you invest it and you make it a priority, guess what? Other people follow you. Um, so be visionary around this. Let's, let's imagine a world. Let's all aspire right to zero suicide. What would that look like if nobody had to die in isolation and despair? Uh, and I've loved seeing these bold leaders take steps in this. One of my areas that I work a lot in is actually the workplace. They were the last major, what we call universal systems, right? So education, healthcare, faith community, these are all universal systems that exist everywhere. Most of the other ones had been somewhat involved, certainly healthcare and to a lesser degree, maybe education, but the workplace was like, oh no, 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 suicide's not a workplace issue. Um, they kind of put up walls for a very long time. Uh, and again, the pandemic really changed that. We were chipping away at it for about a decade, but the pandemic turned that volume way up high. And so when people looked for models, it was the early adopters. It was the people that have been doing this work since you know, 2010, 2012, 2013. They're like, wow, if they did it, we can do it. And so that's what that quote's about. I love that. So can you please share with us a little bit about your story? So everybody also asked me, like, why did you get into psychology? And I don't really know. I liked it. I was good at it. I think really the, the, the thing that I liked was I liked learning about people's stories. And I liked, um, I liked understanding about what motivated behavior. Uh, and so I just kept going and, and thought, oh, maybe one day I'll, I'll practice therapy and help people in that way. And I went to all this graduate school and accumulated all this student debt. And I got into the world as a therapist. And I went, I don't know that I have the personality to be a therapist. And so I did that for a couple of years, but I was kind of miserable. Um, 
because I think, I think I, well, I know now, you know, all these years later that I'm much better suited to be an impact entrepreneur or someone who um, uses influence and inspiration and systems and culture change to make broad changes happen. That's the better fit for me. Anyway, I, I moved on. I moved away from therapy early in my career and started to do leadership development at uh, Regis University here in Colorado. Loved that work, loved helping students find their voice and their talents. Really good fit for me. And right in the middle of that, um, my youngest brother and only sibling took his life. And like many of us who've experienced a, a really big loss or trauma like that, my life is marked by before and after his death. Um, it had a profound impact on me. We were very close, um, especially in our, in our younger years, you know, very, very close. You know, we knew he was struggling. He happened to be diagnosed with bipolar condition when he was a sophomore in college, but people would have not have made that assumption of him of whatever assumptions they make about people who live with bipolar condition uh, because of all the shiny, sparkly things he had around him. He was very talented in many, in many areas, in just about everything. Um, and especially in his business work, he was super successful. He had a family, like all the trappings, all the, all the things of how we measure people's success in life. He had it. Um, but behind that or alongside it, however you want to conceptualize it, he, he fought, he fought hard against his depression. Um, and while he didn't have full-blown mania until that last year in life, like regulating his moods and his sleep and all of that was a big part of what he was managing uh, outside of the public's view. And then in that summer of 2004, he had a full-blown episode of mania and it totally derailed him. Like he just made all these reckless decisions, um, left his family, left his business partners, spent all his money, all these things. And when he woke up from that and he looked back at the rear view mirror of the destruction, the wake of his, uh, the damages that he had created, uh, he, he was so ashamed. Um, he came home to us, I think, and honestly to say goodbye. Uh, and so we got to reconnect with him after a period of being estranged and, and then he died. Um, it ended up being fatal. He took his life on December 7th, 2004. And it was super, just absolutely excruciating and crushing. Um, and on, on, on the heels of his death, uh, our family and his friends, we pulled together in our, in our, in our grief uh, to just resolve to do something, you know, as people often do after tragedy, we, we wanted to do something so that people didn't have to die like my brother died. And, but we decided that we were gonna do bold gap filling work. And we're going to go scan the landscape, see what was already out there, find the biggest holes and figure out how to fill them. And what we noticed when we started looking at the data and the research was, again, this is like 2004, 2005, uh, was that the majority of people who died by suicide were working aged men. The majority of those men never stepped foot in any kind of mental health services. They had one attempt and it was fatal. Well, that seemed like a really important gap to fill. And so we set on a course on how to reach these guys, how to make an impact, how, what they need, where to find them, how to engage with them um, and see if we could, we could do some things that would make a difference. And so that has been the course of my path ever since. Yeah, that's a powerful story. I, I've had a lot of friends in recovery over the years, many, many dozens of friends take their lives. Some and some were overdoses, and some were those were accidental, and some were intentional. And then there mm -hmm. was other other forms too. But so sad, 
I just want to share with you, this is one of the main reasons that I'm very excited that we're chatting is that because the world of, you know, substance use disorders and addiction recovery and the world of suicide prevention, we don't talk to each other enough. These two issues are so incredibly braided together uh, for all of the reasons um, through trauma, through brain health, through all kinds of things. And yet we work in silos. So anytime I have an opportunity to, to cross pollinate, uh, I will take it because we need to be learning more and more from each other. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, we get into that helpless state of mind. And we, mm-hmm. we think there's no way out. And I've been there. And to be honest with you, I can get there. I've been there not recently, but I've been there in sobriety. It's been mm-hmm. 18 years. Of, I've been sober. And the first three few few years were not pleasant. You know, I'm not the man you see is not the person I once was. And it took a lot, a lot of unprogramming, a lot of undoing, a lot of the harmful behaviors and beliefs that I had in life. And it wasn't a smooth road. And there were times when I felt helpless and I was like punching myself in the head or didn't know how to handle life. And that's why most people fail in sobriety is because it gets hard because we're undoing 10, 20, 30, 40 years of harmful living. And now we have to change everything we know how to do, whether it was helpful or not. And that gets painful sometimes. And in the beginning days, when you have to kind of change your your phone book, you know, you got to get rid of some old people, old friends and put some new ones in there. You're kind of doing it on your own at the beginning. Yes, there's some kind of radical and unconditional acceptance in in 12-step fellowship, but it takes people sometimes a while to really trust that. Uh, So there's that period of where you're taking, you know, a step, a leap of faith, and yet there's not a whole lot of support there at the beginning to really fall into. You got to work hard to really build that trust. What are some of the tools that you provide people when they reach out to you or to yeah. your organizations? Well, I'll walk you down kind of two pathways that we took after, after we pulled together and made that resolution. One was we wanted to understand men's experiences. And so as we were kind of discovering this, so was the state of Colorado and quite frankly, the nation, everybody was looking at the same data going, huh? a bunch of guys are falling through the cracks. Maybe we should try something different. Um, And so luckily for us, we worked with the uh, Office of Suicide Prevention here in Colorado and a full service advertising agency called Cactus. And we put our heads together and we went out and um, spent like almost two years just listening to men, uh, all kinds of different guys. And I would say men who would maybe more traditionally adhere to um, old school ideals of masculinity. Uh, Many of those men um, are what we now call double jeopardy men, which means they have a number of risk factors for suicide, including high levels of self-reliance, which seems a little bit paradoxical, uh, but they're very, very unlikely to reach out for help. They have a lot of pride in solving their own problems. Um, They have a lot of self-identity as being provider, the one that people lean on. They don't lean on other people, et cetera, et cetera. So those were were the men that we were seeing as highest risk and the ones that we wanted to listen to. And so we did all kinds of focus groups with like firefighters and, you know, all all kinds of different types of guys. Um, And also the people who surrounded these men, um, their partners, their employers, uh, their faith communities, et cetera. And we just spent time asking questions like, what do you need? How do we reach you? And so forth. And they told us a bunch of things. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole other piece that I share. I'll just give you some of the highlights. One of the things they shared with us out of the box was like, listen, the mental health professionals, you don't understand us. 
backup, you know, all of your mental health language, like if you're depressed, seek help. Yeah. It doesn't reach us. First of all, we don't understand our distress through a lens of mental health. Like we're not broken. We're not crazy. There's really nothing wrong with us. We see our problem as being outside of us, right? It's, we have a stressful life. We have a lot of work stress. We have partnership stress with our spouses or partners and parenting. It's like out here, not in here. Uh, And the message about go seek help, Hmm. just as you were alluding to before, like we like to solve our own damn problems, you know? So that thing that you're trying to make us do is probably the scariest thing anybody's ever asked us to do. And we're not quite sure it's going to work. Like we don't want to waste time, you know, taking work time off from work, driving across town, parking our car in front of the clinic, having to state our problem to a stranger. Like there's just way too many barriers there. And then talking to somebody for an hour about our feelings, like, no, that's not, we don't see how that's going to solve our problems. Um, So if you're wanting to engage us in this conversation, you got to have a different tact. Uh, And so we said, okay, we could, you know, you could probably teach us how to do that. Um, And it was really more about feeling overwhelmed and distressed as a, as a doorway in uh, acknowledging that it's the external that's, that's top of mind. Uh, And then they said, well, you know, it's not, uh," we said, okay, we can probably figure that out, but who's the messenger? Like, who's going to reach you? Who are you going to pay attention to? Is it an expert? Is it a celebrity? And they're like, no, 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 no. It's another guy. It's a guy kind of like us, but maybe one step above us on this perceived hierarchy we have in our heads, like a guy's guy, like a guy I'm going to have. This is a direct quote from one of our focus group guys. I have vicarious credibility for him. Like I see him and I'm like, that's a guy I trust, right? That guy. I want that guy to tell me what's going on. Um, I'll trust him way before I'll trust somebody with a whole bunch of credentials after their name. Uh, And then we said, okay, well, we can work on that. Um, How do we actually reach you? And they said, well, we're not coming to you. We're not coming to your website. We're not coming to your clinic. We're not coming to you. You got to meet us where we're at. Go fishing where the fish are. Come over here. Uh, And if you do so, you better bring some humor along because humor works for us. Humor, you know, humor helps us relax into difficult things. um, And humor is a very effective tool of getting our attention. And we're like, humor? Like, oh, we can't make these things funny. Like really like depression and suicide, you make it funny without offending a whole bunch of people. We can't do that. And he said, well, that's your problem. You know, you figure out funny, you do it well, you've got us. So luckily for us, the geniuses at uh, Cactus, knew funny, new messaging, knew how to cut through clutter using very edgy kinds of digital media and so forth. And so out of all of that, our program, Man Therapy, man, M-A-N, therapy.org was born. Uh, and we created a fake therapist, Dr. Rich Mahogany, who's um, manning up mental health and using his wit uh, and digital media to engage men into their own mental health in the privacy of their own phone or their own computer. So they can just kind of check out themselves. Like, should I be worried about this or not? Um, And the humor stays with the the person as they self-screen through depression, anger, anxiety, substance use. It stays with them through all kinds of tools we give them around self-help, peer help, and so forth. Uh, And so the humor kind of keeps them going because they're like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. It's surprising. It helps them relax into the content. And all along the way, they're getting information, they're getting tools, they're getting feedback. Um, so it's been a brilliant uh, campaign that has won all kinds of international awards for messaging and also public health impact. Um, we were recently in a five-year randomized control trial, which is geeky scientific language for like really rigorous science in the state of Michigan, 
Uh, and lo and behold, five years later, we can say with, with fair, fairly, fairly strong confidence that it works. It works. It reaches the men who are reluctant to seek help. They stay with it. They get the tools. Um, we've had hundreds of thousands of men self-screen since we kicked it off. Um, and we can show that they have decreases in, you know, in suicidal intensity after, after being engaged with the, with the program. So it's, it's exciting because it's free, universally accessible, and it works. So that's man therapy. Yeah, I'll just quote another one of our guys that evaluated the program for us. He said, you know, when I go to a mental health website, it is so clinical. It is so dry. It honestly feels like it's sucking the last bit of life I have out of me. I went to your site and I felt seen. I felt known and the humor made me relax, you know, it's like, I'm going to be okay here. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what we were going for. It, again, it seems paradoxical, like making fun. We're not making fun of mental health or suicide. Um, what we're actually mostly making fun of is how some of those traditional norms of masculinity don't always work for guys in this situation. Um, so taking those kind of, you know, stereotypical concepts and spinning them on a head on its head a little bit. What is it? It's mantherapy.org, right? Yeah. Mantherapy.org. And we have a YouTube channel, which has some, some of the, some of the videos there are funny there. They use the, our fake doctor, Dr. Rich Mahogany and his quirkiness, but a lot of them are also storytelling videos. Cause we know, right. The guys told us, I want to, I see a man who's just like me. Um, so we have all kinds of different men in the, in the storytelling videos, telling their stories of experience, strength, and hope um, through life's difficult challenges. Mm, awesome. Yeah. Guys, if you're listening, please reach out. What a great resource. Um, you know, everybody always talks about like the, the standard things like pray and meditate and all this type of stuff. And this is just a little outside the box, but could just be the thing that we need to hear to apply into our lives and not take ourselves so seriously. Yeah. It's a great place to start actually. So, you know, if you have a buddy or a partner, or a man in your life or a son or a father or whatever, and they seem really reluctant about this whole conversation, it's a great place for people to start, to start to think about and reflect and connect to resources again in the privacy of their own home. So one of the, again, from the focus groups, one of the guys said to me, you know, before you make me go do that thing, that seems really insurmountable, like go talk to a mental health professional. Like, I, I don't see myself doing that before you make me do that. Can you just give me some self-help tips? So, and I quote, I can stitch up my own wounds like Rambo. I was like, you don't hear women say that very often. I want to stitch up my own wounds like Rambo. <laughs> um, but he said, you know, cause I got to know, like I've exhausted all my personal resources to solve this. And um, and, and if I can't get there on my own, then yeah, I'm a little bit more open to trying some of these other things out. So again, it gets, it gives men a chance to like, try some things on and hear other men's stories and go peek poke around at some tools and all that stuff gives them a place to start taking some steps. So outside of the world of working in the suicide prevention, what else inspires you? And what brings you joy in your life? Well, especially this past year, you know, really getting uh, tuned in into those self-care practices has been hugely important. Um, over the course of my life, I think probably art has been a big piece of, of my self-care, wellness, and inspiration. Uh, in, in undergraduate, I was a dual major studio art and psychology, and I got to that point at graduation. I'm like, hmm, what am I going to be, an artist? Psychology. My father's like, oh, hell no. I didn't pay all that money for you to be a starving <laughs> artist somewhere. Go get your advanced degree. I'm like, okay. Um, but it has always stayed with me. Um, and I, and I love it because first of all, it's just a fun outlet for me. I just, I just, I get a lot of joy at flow, you know, time just flies. Um, but also I think it's just a great 
connection to the mental health world. Like a lot of people, arts are the go-to in terms of expression and connection. There's a lot of things we can do with the arts that we can't really do with everyday language. So I just love it. So that's a big one. Um, And I think the other piece for me has been running. Um, I'm a wannabe athlete. I want to make that perfectly clear. I was not given any real physical talents except a head for perseverance. So somewhere around 1996, I decided that I was going to start running and I could do it. Not fast, not gracefully, no, nothing pretty about it. Not agile. I just can keep going. Uh, so I decided that I was, uh, set the, the incredibly stupid goal of, uh, a marathon in all 50 States. And I got to 35 marathons in 30 states, and then COVID hit, and uh, totally derailed me. So, <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm working really hard now to just kind of regain a level of fitness where that could even be a possible dream. Because my middle son, in particular, is very interested in in running with me. Not really with me because he's like 10 times faster than me, but it's a nice mother son bonding thing, and it's a really adventurous way to see the country. So I hope, I hope, I hope I can get back into it. <laughs> That's great. I actually met a guy who did that and he was in his eighties and I'm not sure if he's around still, but he did run a marathon in all 50 States, including Alaska, Hawaii. And, um, it was pretty incredible feat. I I say the same thing. I'm a pretend middle-aged athlete and I call it running, but it's really more of a jog slash. It's like a slog, you know? Yeah. Like a fast walk. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And I did all the fun, big, you know, adventures to marathons first. So I've done Alaska, I've done Hawaii, I've done New York, Chicago, uh, the Marine Corps. So I things I got left are like the Dakotas, actually just North Dakota and, uh, you know, Mississippi and Alabama. So I gotta, I gotta get really jazzed to, you know, drop the money to take the flight to go <laughs> to some States that are just, I, I have to find the attraction and, and make myself excited to go. So that's also part of it. <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, just, I mean, we're having fun talking about this, but how important is exercise in our lives for our emotional well-being? We think about it for our building muscles, losing weight, whatever it is you, you're trying to accomplish, but for our emotional well-being, we have to exercise. And I'm going to throw in here, get outside. We need to breathe fresh air and get some sunshine and just like leave the house. I have one of my clients in England. And he's a high performing entrepreneur. He does very well, makes lots of money. And I was like, when's the last time you were outside? Cause he's all whacked out. And he's like, uh, four days ago. I was like, four days, get outside. So I have it on his calendar. Every hour it goes off for three to five minutes. Go outside at the top of every hour. Just go out and breathe. You yeah. Know? I've just been listening to the Huberman lab and um, he's a, a neurobiologist um, out of Stanford. And he's got all this research that even five minutes of outside, not through your window, but go outside sunlight into your face (laughs) will do so much for you regulating your sleep cycle, your mood cycle, like five minutes. Everyone can take a five minute break, go outside, put sunlight on your face. It'll do wonders. Um, And then I I interviewed somebody else for my podcast uh, the other day, and he was talking about the benefits at, at five minutes, half hour, and then three days. If you can unplug and move outside for a solid three days in a row, you will have an entire mindset shift, um, which is very profound. And I, I know that to be true because I, I do 
a little backpacking with my family. And when you're unplugged from your devices and you're out in the weather and the sun and in nature for three days, you absolutely have a shift in how you view the world. Like all of a sudden things feel a little bit more manageable. It's really profound and very important. And in our digital age, we've gotten really disconnected from nature, but there's so much to be said about getting outside and moving outside. It's really crazy stuff. Just getting outside, like you talked about, I don't want to say cure, but it will certainly help any type of depression or anxiety or fears or whatever that you're feeling, get outside because our bodies were designed to move, not sit still for 23 hours. And I know people say, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Um, You know, it's really important to also be present outside, but sometimes I like to bundle things, you know? So I do a a morning walk. It's pre-dawn because I'm a really early riser, which isn't always the safest thing to do in the woods in Colorado, but whatever. I've been doing it for decades it's going to be fine. Um, so a morning walk with my dog. And while I am on that walk, I'll either do like gratitude meditations, or I have a couple of podcasts that I really love. Some of them are, are just about beauty. So I have a, a poetry podcast that just makes my heart soar. It's so wonderful. Um, I have some recovery podcasts that I like to listen to, or I just am fully present and listening for bears. <laughs> as has been the case recently. Um, But, you know, bundling a couple of things is okay too. So I got the dog walked, I'm getting my exercise, I'm outside, I'm doing my gratitude thing. Like, you know, they kind of go together. Um, So there's, there's ways I think to, to, to put some things together and and you really just got to make it a priority. That's the bottom line. It doesn't take a lot, you know, to make time for some of these things that we, we know we have tons of research that will give you mood boosts and sleep regulation and, and appetite regulation and all the things that we say we want. Yeah. Well said. Thank you so much. So Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, how do people get in touch with you? Sure. So my website is sallyspencerthomas.com. So head over there to podcasts and so forth. I'm also on all of the social media spaces. Uh, Dr. Sally Speaks on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all kinds of things. So I look forward to connecting with everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. I learned a lot and I'm really grateful that you were here today. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. All right. And thanks everybody for tuning into the Funky Brain Podcast and be sure to check out Uh, Dr. Sally's site. And I hope you're having a great day today. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. One of the most common questions I get is how do I become more successful? I see everybody else getting where they want to be in life, but I'm still stuck. There could be many reasons, but the main reason I find in people being stuck is lack of focus and of course, accountability. So there are three key steps to focused success. Number one is intention, taking action with intention. Intentions should be extremely exciting and reasonable, not umbrella goals. They need to be realistic and achievable. Like if you're making 50 grand a year and you wanna make a million a year, that's probably not gonna happen right away. I'm not saying it's impossible, it's just probably not gonna happen next year. But what if we can get you to 100 grand next year? That would be double your income, that's awesome, right? And it's a huge achievement. Once we set these goals and we're intentional about the steps to get us there, Then we have something concrete to work on. And now that's exciting. And they need to be in writing, not just in your brain. Remember, my brain is my problem. I think all the time, all over the place. I need to write them down and get them concrete. Now that's intention. The second step for focused success is gratitude. Create gratitude statements that are fun and passionate, but truthful. 
and focused in reality. So if you're making 50 grand a year and you wanna make 100 grand, then say, I'm grateful for the work I get to do to keep me living my life so I can get to my goal. I'm grateful for eating well and exercising so I can get to my goal of losing 50 pounds. I'm grateful for my kids, my partner, my house, my pool, my car. Stay in gratitude. There's no better way to stay positive and on track than living in gratitude. Third step for focused success is action. And action steps are everything. Let me repeat that. Action steps are everything. Once we clearly define our goal, our one thing, then we can create specific action steps to take on a regular basis to help get us there. And here's a huge piece. They must be uncomfortable or we cannot expect change. They cannot be effortless or there will be no change. Remember, the way that I've been doing things, my work habits, my drinking habits, my eating habits, whatever, they got me stuck here. So I need to do things a little differently than I have been doing or I probably won't see different results. I mean, think about it. If I could have achieved these things on my own, I probably would have by now. So these goals, they need to be measurable. They need to be put on a timeline. Monday at 10 a.m., I'm doing this. Tuesday at noon, I'm doing this. When I'm working with my clients, we have lots of homework. And when I ask them, when will you have this done? And they say something like, maybe by the end of next week, I say, uh, that's bullshit. Please have that to me by tomorrow morning, tomorrow by dinner at the latest. This is how you get results. The old you without an accountability partner would say, maybe by the end of next week and then nothing would ever get done. That's how we got stuck here in the first place. Does that make sense? So hopefully some of this rings true with you and you're ready to make drastic changes in your life. If you don't know where to begin or if you're looking for that push to get you to the next level, please reach out. Give me a call and set up a free session to start radically changing your life forever. The most satisfactory years of your life lie ahead. Life isn't over, it's just starting. I'll talk to you soon. Have a beautiful day today.